0: You are listening to The Gateway Church in Spring Lake, Michigan. To learn more, visit us at thegatewaygh.com. Today I'm going to share with you uh, a message I'm just calling for the city. And uh, and I know that when guest speakers come, sometimes guest speakers come and they brag about their church and they brag about all the things they've done. And I am going to share some of that because Pastor Ben asked me to do so. Uh, But I want you to know this conversation of this message and this subject began 10 years ago when I became lead pastor of Freedom Christian in Sterling Heights. On the first Sunday I was pastor, I asked this question, if our church closed today, would the community even notice? I mean, would they notice an empty building? That's a different question. Would they notice the impact of our church if our church closed today? And the whole church sat there and most of them said, yes, I think they would. And my reply was no. It was kind of a shocking, great way to start your senior pastoring. How many know I started off with a bang? I think everyone immediately went, did we make a mistake? Our church was healthy, really vibrant. We were a good congregation that knew how to worship and knew how to pray. And we were giving about $100,000 a year to missions at that time. And, and we were just a good, healthy church. Any of you would want to go there, you'd go there, you'd say, we have good stuff for kids and youth and family I mean, it, it is a healthy, good church. But how many know a healthy, good church that doesn't reach its community is making a grave mistake to the greatest cause God asked us to do? And it wasn't that we were bad. It wasn't that we were wrong. It just was that we weren't a Great Commission kind of filling, a fulfilling church. In 1925, and so so you're going to hear these stories today, but you need to know we're a work in progress. We've come a long way in 10 years, uh, but we started off at a place that wasn't really great. In fact, we were more of a, we called ourselves a hospital where, where people could get healthy spiritually and emotionally. But how many know a hospital without sick people is this a country club? And we were a country club church. We were a really good, healthy church, and we claimed that people got healthy, and they did, and we were full of unity, but we did not have sick people. How many know, when sick people come in your church, it messes everything up? You're going to hear some stories about it. One of them, I'm going to have to be careful how I say it so I don't offend all of you. We'll talk about that today. In 1925, in Dayton, Tennessee, a schoolteacher named John Scopes, many of you may know where I'm headed with this, wound up in court because he was trying to teach evolution in the public schools. The Scopes Monkey Trial, as it's often known and often referred to as, is the first trial to be broadcast uh, in public. It was broadcast on radio. The issue was the control of curriculum. Who had control over the curriculum taught in public schools? Scopes won, and evolution was validated as part of the legitimate curriculum in public schools. And the Scopes Monkey Trial, as you can look it up online, had a huge impact on American Christianity. As a result of the verdict in 1925, the Christian world became a subculture of the greater world. Prior to that in 1925 and since then, uh, prior to that though, we were, the church was the center of every community. What you began to see is a shift happen in American Christianity. And the thought went something like this, well if evolution's going to be taught in schools and, and we're going to do this, we're going to create our own schools, which began the formation of Christian schools. Some said, even I don't even trust Christian schools. We're going to really move to more of a homeschool model. And there's nothing wrong with Christian schools. We have a large percentage of our people go to a Christian school. A large percentage of our, our church, or uh, not as large, but a percentage of our congregation homeschools. I'm not uh, dissing any of those. If you're here, don't go, wow, this guy started off his church 10 years ago rough. He's ruining my day. That's not what I'm against. But I want you to hear the bigger principle. Christians began to withdraw from society and formed a sub-community within our culture that was isolationist against our culture and the culture became the enemy and we became the moral ground of our own making. And you say, well, what's wrong with morals? There's nothing wrong with morals. Should the church be the moral ground of a community? Sure. But if it's not engaged in a community, it becomes something, something unto itself. And the Christian world began to live their whole life around other Christians. We began to pull within ourselves and stopped interacting the world that Jesus came to die. By the way, the verse is that whosoever believe, it's not whoever you choose to believe or whoever you, it's that God came so that Jesus came so that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the church world became withdrawn from the greater world as a whole. And we use verses and parts of, of Scripture to try to isolate ourselves and justify that behavior. Now, how many know the danger became, well, if I'm too close to people of the world, I'll look like them. Well, listen, I believe greater is he that's in me than he that's within the world. And our faith began to slowly withdraw from a confident standpoint that we are believers and nothing can shake me. I stand upon the rock of who Jesus is. And our faith is strong and our God is alive and the spirit works. And we became afraid of the enemy. By the way, the devil is defeated. He's already lost. On the final judgment, do you know who cast the devil into hell for all eternity? It's not God. It's an unnamed angel. Do you know that there's scripture text that says, is that what I was afraid of? (laughs) Can I tell you, the Christian world became afraid of the enemy, and the enemy grew in power in our minds, yet he had no new power. And the Christian world began to go underground and said, as long as we survive the culture around us, we'll be okay. And I think it broke the heart of Christ. Because Jesus hung out with the sinners and the sick. And by the way, the disciples changed the world and you wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the people who gave their lives going into cultures and said, we are Christians and our gospel stands. Jesus is still the Son of God. He still lives. He still rules. He still reigns. And the authority I walk in is not a defeated authority. The devil has lost and we will win. But for generations, we withdrew. And this was the heartbreaking reality for me as a pastor of Freedom Christian is, is was our church functioning in society but not fulfilling the call of God while we were in society? And so I want to look real quick at the nation of Israel, and then I want to talk at the end of what made Jesus cry. And I'm hoping today you will become gripped with something within yourself. And I will tell you there's a certain tension to this message because some of us who are ultra liberal are like, yes, preach it, pastor." And some of us who are ultra-conservative will naturally have a sense to go, oh no, but where does this lead? And I will tell you, I was on the ultra-conservative side all my life and still am. I'm about as conservative as you are going to get. But I will also tell you, the Great Commission compels me beyond my own comfort zone. So hang with me today. We're going to look at a letter to the nation of Israel that addresses their role in their city, and it's a dramatic scene. And it also speaks to us about our role. In Jeremiah 29.1, it says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders in exile. The Israelites and some of the leaders are in exile from their land. And Jeremiah, the great prophet, sends them a letter and says, I got a word from the Lord for you. And he says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have what? Into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We have to read that real carefully. The Lord of Lords, Jeremiah says, I've got a message from God for you. And the message from God is that you who have been kicked out of your land of Jerusalem and now live in the wicked land of Babylon that does not honor God, that became a standard against God as a name. How many know? You say Babylon, you know it's a wicked culture. And he says, I got a word from you. You are not there because of accident. You have been sent there by God. Can you imagine what this must have felt like to the Israelites? Put yourself in their shoes. Hey, Jeremiah, gather on. Jeremiah's got a word for us. Yeah, let's hear what it is. Hey, you know how you get kicked out of your land? You know how you're living in a culture that is ungodly? You know how you live in a place that doesn't honor the things of God? Yeah, Um, God sent you there. And I think they're going, uh, what? In exile, they felt they were ruined. Jerusalem. Falling was to them like the end of their heritage, the destruction of everything they believed in. This was not an encouraging message for them. I mean, look back in their history. To find out they were sent there, look back when their history, shortly after sin entered the world, God began to put his hand and, and hatched a plan to win the world back that eventually would lead through a bloodline to Jesus, the Messiah, who would come to save our lives. And he did so through an individual that he made a promise to. Anyone know the name? Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham. You'll see in the Old Testament, he's mixed up. His name is sometimes Abram and then Abraham. It says, go from your country and your uh, your, uh, kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will what? I want you to notice the very initial call of God. It is a thread all through Scripture. I I talk, I'm going to... In process, my church is wanting me to write a book called Threads. But this is one of the threads that you see all through Scripture that exists all through. It's, it's, a, it's everywhere. And almost every big chunk of text you read is this message. You were saved and rescued to be a blessing, to do, to be involved, to give out. It's not a faith unto yourself. It's a faith unto Him through you to others so He gets the glory. And He says... And you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless the people who come from your uh, family bloodline. And God's covenant is clearly mentioned as it comes to us for the purpose of going through us. And God says to the nation of Israel, hey, listen, I want you to know the calling I gave you through Abraham way back in the beginning to be missionaries to your city is still true even in exile." even in Babylon. Hey, remember the calling that Abraham had? Yeah, Oh, it was that we're going to be a great nation. Oh no, it was that you were going to be a great nation so you can be a blessing to others. Yeah, but I focus on the great nation. We're going to be a great Christian moral place. and we're going to, That's great, but you're supposed to be that to be a blessing. That was the Abrahamic Abraham, uh, covenant. And that's what Jesus continues in through life and you see that in the Gospels in the New Testament. God says, even in exile, you're missionaries. Can I challenge you? We say this at our church that there are nine pastors and there are 670 mich- uh, uh, pastors and ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every person in a local church is on the mission field. There is no such thing as missions programs in churches. Oh, we program them because we need to. How many know missions isn't a program? It's a call to the believer. You know, the United States is the third largest mission field in the world. Met a lady who came into our church a few months ago. She said, hey, I've never been here before. I said, that's great. She goes, no, I mean, I've never been to church before. I said, oh, my, ever in your life? She said, no. And she said, "Uh, you talked about Jesus today. I said, yeah. She goes, I've never heard about Jesus. I said, oh, come on, you grew up in the United States. She says, no, I've heard the name Jesus, usually said in a lot of derogatory ways. She said, I've never heard anybody ever tell me that Jesus died for me. Is that true? So where did you live? Sterling Heights, her whole entire life. She had heard about Jesus. She had, heard, she had never heard that Jesus died for her. The mission field in front of us is every day in the cubicles of our workplaces, in the fields that we till, in the, in the relational construction sites that we have amongst the co-workers. And, in fact, you know one of my greatest struggles as a pastor was I got sick of being around Christians. I love pastoring. If you talk to the people in my church, they'll tell you. Like, guest speaking for me? I do it a couple times a year. It's wonderful to come out and be a part of other congregations. It stirs my spirit. But all I can think about all day is I miss my folks. I love the church. But I started going to the same restaurants all the time. My staff will tell you there's five restaurants I go to. Do you know why? So I get to know the waitressing staff. So I get to know the waiters. So I get to know the bell people. I go into the bank still. I don't take a picture on my phone. And you say, well, that's hard and that's inconvenient. Absolutely inconvenient, but I know all the tellers, and I've prayed with a few over the years. See, they know my name, and they know who I am. Someday they're going to know my Savior. I am super intentional of not ordering things on Amazon when it could be convenient for me to run to Walmart because I desperately want to engage with people who don't know Jesus because I am a missionary called to my city I had nine neighbors come from my church, or from my neighborhood, to our church on a Sunday morning. And I will tell you that didn't happen on accident. That happened by sitting on back decks in 95 degree heat when I want to be inside taking a nap, watching the Tigers in the middle of summer in my air-conditioned house. And I sit on the back deck with a bunch of neighbors who are predominantly drunk 90% of the time. But about 10% of the time walk across the street and say, my marriage is in trouble, would you help me? And they've come to church and sat in the front row and gone out to eat and said, I can't believe that there's a God named Jesus. I will tell you, if we change our mentality about how we live our lives for Jesus, we are all called a missionaries. Rather, we're in Babylon or Jerusalem. <laughs> this was a whole new paradigm shift to the Israelites. And I think it is to the modern day church. They saw themselves as victims. Now hang with me. But in reality, they were God's called people. They were in Babylon, and everything they believed in around them was eroding. It was surrounded by false gods, pagan gods, because they they just you know, noticed all the the things that are wrong in the world. How many know there's a little secret? If all we focus is on what's wrong in the world, we won't have the energy to fix what's right. Maybe we should celebrate what's right in him and we'll have the energy to fix what's wrong in our world. Jerusalem was the equivalent of a Christian city, a perfect place, at least at that time, where you had the opportunity to openly walk in your faith. Jerusalem had become a subculture of Babylon. It was Babylon that overwhelmed the Christian culture of that day, and Jerusalem lived within the confines of their own creation. Babylon, wicked, false god-worshipping, anti-God-living society. And if I'm a Jewish person living in Babylon, my question to God would be is, how in the world do I live in exile? How do I live every day in Babylon when I'd rather be living in Jerusalem? How do we live according to the Bible in a culture that seems to no longer acknowledge God as God? And it's the same question for us today. Let me give you a couple thoughts. Number one, his answer, God's answer is to dig in. Watch this. Jeremiah, his answer to the question in Jeremiah chapter 29 is this. Dig in. Set up a model home. In your city. Do you know where reaching your your neighborhood, reaching your neighbors comes from? It starts when the fact if they walk by your house on a Friday, they don't hear screaming coming out the windows. Not that you don't fight. I have two daughters. I have a teenage daughter. I have a wife who is exactly like my teenage daughter. (laughs) I have, I mean exactly, and those two can get after it. My youngest is the one who is super sweet. My oldest is sweet too. My oldest is the child that when she gets in trouble, she actually sits sits there in sincerity, not like as a game and says, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I need to correct that. I appreciate you guys parenting me. I need that. I mean, she's like awesome. But, But when her mom and her go at it, oh my word. I mean, over nothing like macaroni. I mean, it's like not even big things, because my oldest is a really good kid. It's not over big things. It's like over macaroni. My youngest is my snuggly youngest. She loves being the youngest, and so when the fight's happening, she will interject this, which doesn't help. My youngest daughter will go, oh, Dad, we're so much like each other. We just love each other and don't want to fight over dumb things, and then both of them turn. And my youngest is tough. I mean, she's tough, okay? So they go at it, and I, I literally one day just slowly walked out the front door <laughs> and went for a walk. <laughs> and about 30 minutes later, they opened the door, and they were all standing in the kitchen going, what happened? I said, I couldn't take it. <laughs> they cried and said, we're so sorry, Daddy. We're so sorry. It was a wonderful three hours after, and then the fights began again. Listen, I understand life is normal. I understand life doesn't go well. But he says, set up something model. Listen to what he says. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 6. You were sent there. God called you. You are in exile. You're in Babylon. And he says this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply here and do not decrease. And you go, What? There is a proud, profound difference, is what he is saying, between missionaries and refugees. And he's saying to them, you're living as a refugee, a victim of where you came from, and your goal is just to survive. And and there's the thought process that goes like this with Israel. If I can just stay here, if I can just stay here, if I can just survive. Listen, Sterling Heights and Washington Township, we have two campuses. I will tell you, Sterling Heights is the largest assemblance of Iraqi refugees in the entire world outside of the Middle East. We have many refugees who've been in our congregation. I've learned something from them. They taught me on this. So as I talked to them, I said, "Sit with me, tell me." They said, "Refugees come out of wherever they came from and their whole goal is to eat and be unnoticed. They gather in their families and they survive." And he says, "Listen. You're sitting here and the tendency is to what? Decrease. Cuz the Jewish people saw themselves as refugees of wars. They were victims. They were victims." And refugees keep their suitcases packed. I can't wait to get out of here, to get back home, to get where I need to be. They're always living for a destination outside of where they're at. And how many know in the kingdom, we know that someday the Lord will come back for us and we're all excited about it. But it's like Christians started packing up their bags for the rapture and have kept them on the side and said, I can't wait to get out of here. And the Christian world lives more like refugees than we do like missionaries. Are you with me this morning? Now, my bags are packed, and when the Lord wants to come, it's all good. But before he comes, I'm going to tell you something. Those bags are not the bags I walk in every day because I'm still called to do something while I'm here. But God says, stop thinking this way. Settle in. Dig in. Build houses. It's practical. Raise families. Increase. Do you know what he's saying? Increase in influence. Increase in who you are. Don't decrease. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be a victim. Don't miss the opportunity in front of you. Love your city. Be a part of it. Be involved in it. Be engaged in it. Don't give in to the culture that's against God. Walk in the authority of Jesus. Well, for them, it was an authority of God. But live. Live. And embrace the unique convictions and the values of the Word of God. And become a part of the counterculture to the culture that doesn't represent him. We do what everyone else does, but we do it God's way. Have kids and teach your kids to love the city. And establish a legacy in the city. Don't live as you can't wait to get out, settle in. Invest yourself in the community, invest your family in the community Instead of calling your world bad and always speaking against the community, maybe we need to proclaim it holy ground. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, identified many years ago seven mountains of influence every church should have in its community. Number one is education. I think this will be on your screen. Arts and entertainment, uh, government, religion, family, media, and business. You can leave that on the screen for a few seconds. These are the places that the church needs to be influencers in. And the Israelites were tempted in Babylon to do what we're tempted today, to create our own isolated world and to live in that and become church-centric instead of God-missionally-centric. God's telling Israel to flip that script. Let me just tell you, at Freedom Christian, 10 years ago, we were not involved. Can I tell you, in the third largest city, well, it's going to be the third at the next census, but it was the fourth last year by just barely largest city in the whole state of Michigan, in the third to fourth largest city in the state of Michigan, we went to a banquet, and the mayor and the city council And all the leaders of the city surprised Freedom Christian and made us against all the Fords and Chryslers and GMs that pump millions of dollars into the city. We didn't give millions. But voted on by the leadership of the thing, they brought Freedom Christian up on stage and said, you are the greatest volunteer organization in the entire city. And for 10 years in a row have nominated us and we have been elected the best place of worship in Sterling Heights by the leadership of the city. We now sit on the government leadership board of vision casting for the city of Sterling Heights. We are in the public schools. In fact, the public schools this year came and brought their meal program. They would do it in in schools. The only church they brought it to was ours. And they fed the entire area free lunch and breakfast every day out of our location. And I said, why did you come to us? And they said, because you're our city's church. The mayor will call our church and say, we have a shut-in, will you go help them? We've had people in our church go and save people's houses from being condemned by fixing up small things that the city required. We are in the public schools. We have moms who have joined the PTA and become presidents of the PTA only because they want influence in the community. We have at Washington Township, our new campus that we picked up two years ago, the school just called us, the only elementary school in the whole area, the whole region, who has been off Put into, has been closed off to churches for years, we came in and started serving the teachers and, and doing all sorts of strategies to reach in the community. Guess what they just called us? Will you do an after-school Bible study for kids? And our children's pastor is in the school now, starting next week, doing a Bible study after school, and they've got a community of 50 parents who are interested in sending their kids. The police chief at the end of summer, wrote an article, and in the article spent a paragraph talking about freedom Christian and the impact they're making in the police department. And the fire department uh, chief wrote something about us too. The parks and rec department, local communities, our school next door got a new principal. And when we came, the new principal, she came over and said, I need to meet you. Every teacher in our school said, we got to get to know the pastors over there. And I said, what'd they tell you about us? <laughs> and she said... They told me that you give and give and give and have never asked for a single thing and it's made an impact in the lives of families in our community and because of that, you are part of our school. You're not just the neighbors next door. I tell you, that's been 10 years of hard work. Why? Because God loves the people in our city. And because he loves it, he called us to it. How do we live in exile? We dig in. Second thing, reach out, he says. Listen to verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city, for I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city. This is the Babylonians. Why do I want to care about their city? And pray to the Lord on its behalf. What? For if its welfare... For in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. In other words, he says this, your life is is connected to the success of the city. When your city wins, you win. It's adapting a, 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 a connected concept. Jesus came to redeem everything that's broken. When the church reaches outside its walls and redeems what is broken, everything begins to come together. The city wins. We, we do this thing every summer called Love Week and we, we go from 8 in the morning till 10 at night for seven straight days. We do over, I think last year it was over 3,000 hours of community service. We have hundreds of people. We wear Love Week shirts around our city and we do it for a week and it blitzes every, from single moms to to crisis pregnancy centers, to police and fire and, and schools and soccer camps and the immigrant community and the re- refugee community and and uh, English as a second language. I mean, it is absolutely absurd what we accomplish in a short period of time. And and I wear the Love Week shirt outside of that sometimes when I just grab a T-shirt, and I was walking through a Walmart, and a lady says, Hey, Freedom Christian! I thought, No, I'm just Pastor Aaron. I'm just Aaron, you know, I'm just a person. She says, Oh, you go to that church. And I said, Yeah. She goes, Last summer, my, my mother had been a shut-in for 10 years. You guys came out to her yard. You cleaned up her property. And guess what one of the people in your church did? I said, what? She goes, she saw that her nails had overgrown on her toes and that the lady was saying how she used to be beautiful as they looked in the pictures. And one of your ladies in the church clipped her toenails, buffed and polished them, painted her toenails and her fingernails. And she said, and my mom, then you sent over somebody to do her hair and you made her feel beautiful. And she called and said, I'm, and she gave her heart to the Lord, by the way. <laughs> And she said, and she's passed away. She says, but she gave her life to Jesus because somebody in your church clipped toenails just because you wanted her to be pretty and feel good. I'm in Walmart crying. She says, are you okay? I said, I don't know. (laughs) Because when the whole city wins, we win. Sorry, I get... I'm real proud of the work our people have done. From the day of Pentecost, when there were 120 people in the upper room, to the Roman leader of the Roman Empire, Constantine, becoming the leader of the Roman Empire in 306, the church grew in 300 years, or a little bit less than that, from 120 people to 33 million people. How do you go from 120 people to 33 million people? In 300 years, do you know how two crises hit hit the world—the smallpox epidemic of 165 and the measles epidemic of 251? In both of those environments, family members would leave the minute their families would get sick or would kick them out on the street. Do you know who stayed? Do you know that the Roman historians report the only people who stayed were the Christians? They sacrificed their life, they sacrificed their well-being, they gave outside of themselves when they knew because many of them reported that they had to share with people about Christ. And so it wasn't just about making them whole or giving them a, a death that was honorable, though it did both. It was about giving your life beyond yourself because they needed to know about Jesus. And at the end of these plagues, something crazy happened the percentage of Christians in the world of that time, in the Roman Empire, because of death and the massive amounts of people who died, they went from being a subculture to being almost the predominant religious belief when Constantine became emperor. Part of the reason Constantine declared Christianity the Roman religion wasn't because of only a conversion in his own mind. Do you know why? He had no other choice because it was a predominant religious belief of that day because Christians stayed and converted so many people to Jesus Christ and the way of Christ that the church grew rapidly because Christians stayed when everyone else left. And yet, in our culture, Christians retreat. Instead of giving out, he says, listen, dig in and reach out. Third thing he says is look up. Jeremiah nine eight. Are you with me? You got a few more minutes? He says, do not let your prophets or diviners, div, 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 ah, oh, you got it. I can't say it. Who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying in my name, I did not send them. Listen, there were Babylonian people going around declaring that they were speaking on behalf of God. And they were sending a message that was contrary to what God was saying. They were saying, don't worry about loving your neighbor. Don't buy a house. You guys are refugees. The Lord says you're going to return to your land. And, And they were going around at that time saying the exact opposite message. And part of God's words through Jeremiah was, don't listen to what people say about Christians. Because what has happened in their culture was they were going, well, this is what people believe, and they're saying this is from God, and this is who we are, and so they didn't plant roots. And a fortress mentality developed, us versus them, motivated by fear. It's us versus them. It's Christians versus the world. And if we get too connected to that mentality, what we end up doing is missing. It's never been Christians versus the world. It's been Jesus versus sin. It's been Jesus versus sin. Well, I don't want to get polluted. You don't have to. Holiness is separation from sin, not separation from sinners. You might want to write that one down. That just that was good. Holiness is separation from sin, not separation from sinners. Listen, if you come out on a Saturday in the summer, I'm sitting on the back deck with my really close friend Ryan and my close friend Jane who I absolutely love and they are not believers and they are pounding down bud lights like you've never seen and I'm drinking my Diet Coke and we have a blast. And we talk about dreams and we talk about parenting and we talk about the future. They're in a journey to discover who God is and I will tell you, that's been a far cry from when I moved in the neighborhood my first day. Pulled up in our church van because I was driving by and I stopped to drop something off. And I heard out of their garage, them and all my other neighbors talking about how Pentecostal pastors are weird. And I literally thought, you've got it. Well, and some of them are. Okay, let's just be real. You know, listen, a lot of the things people say about Christians, we go, oh, listen, some of them are true. And we've done them. Come on, let's be real. And you've done them, <laughs> yeah, and you've done them too, I have too. To go from that to that, listen, I'm not contaminated by sin when I hang around them, I'm being light in a dark place. Now certainly for some who have had addictive things, there's wisdom in that, okay? I, I wouldn't encourage people to, to hang out in environments, of course, we don't go into places that are inappropriate, you know what I'm talking about, you could take that to an extreme, don't go that extreme, that's, that's not wise. But I'm talking about interacting and having friends outside of Christian circle. And I got news for you. If you're here at church, can I tell you, you're surrounded by sinners. And guess what? If you're married, you'll be living with a sinner for the rest of your life. And if you have children, you'll be raising sinners. (laughs) And if you look in the mirror, you see a sinner. Saved by grace, but still a sinner. It's amazing how in the Christian world we forget where we came from. And act as if we're powerless to the things of the enemy when we've experienced the power of God overcoming the enemy. We forget. I was in church one day and I had just challenged our church to reach outside our walls. And there was a guy who the week before came to our church. And I don't know if I shared this last time I spoke here, but it's one of my favorite moments in life. It would stress me beyond words. Our church was wrestling with this subject. How do we reach out? But, you know, the natural fear in a church is, is, well, there's a lot of people in our church who have needs, and if we reach out, we're going to be devoting our attention there. And listen, you can do both. We are very good at caring for the people in our congregation at the same time. So this guy comes to our church, and he's a heroin addict, and he is like, like full all out, having a problem, and he's catching me right as I'm walking up the stage to come up to preach. By the way, can I just tell you, never grab your pastor and tell him something important right before he preaches. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, someone comes and goes, hey, just so you know, I'm leaving my spouse. And you're like, but I'm about to preach, you know. You know? So he walks up and he's like, Pastor, I, 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 I can't, I, I have never not been high for more than a half hour and I'm, I can't sit through, worship is just too long. It just went 20 minutes and I'm, I'm jonesing and I got to get out of here. And he's got all the marks and, you know, he scratches, he picks at his face, he's got all the scars. And I said, and I, I'm walking up on stage, people are settling in their seat. And how many know at that moment as a pastor, you say whatever is the best thing you can say? I said, well, do what you have to do to stay here. And then I got up on stage and I'm thinking, did I just tell him to go use drugs? Is this okay? <laughs> and, but I can't tell anybody. Like, I'm, I'm wanting, like, how do I tell a staff member to go check the parking lot? I know we got a safety team wandering around out there. Maybe they'll find them. You know, is, did I, did I, what did, I, how many know in those moments you just don't have a clue if you said the right thing? And all through my message, I'm preaching, and all I'm doing in my head is going, oh, no, where is he? And I can't find him in the crowd. We're too big, and the lights are too bright, and I'm like, so I'm doing things like this. Have you ever been on a mountain, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm making up analogies, you know? you know, and the sun's in your eyes, and I'm not, I'm not I, the analogy was just made up. I'm trying to find this guy in the crowd. I can't find him service ends and and by the way if you don't think your pastor is preaching and having a million things going through his mind at the same time i promise you he is um like i'm wondering what pastor ben and uh is having for breakfast right now at denny's and so um and so i'm standing there and uh and at the end of service i walk by the sanctuary and there he is sitting there just in a seat all by himself and he's just doing this and i said oh my word he was in service i think so i go over and find him i said what's going on he says i'm not high so what do you mean you're not high? He goes, well, I, start, I left you and I thought, I think pastor told me to go do drugs. <laughs> I was like, oh no, please don't tell anybody in the church that. And, and so he says, and so on the way back to my seat, I said, I felt like I was just supposed to sit for a second. And he says, and from the moment I sat, did you turn all the lights off in the sanctuary? See, what I mean? He goes, because it was like I was sitting there with a spotlight, and for the first time, this warmth came over my body, and I wasn't high, and I haven't been high. I smell things different. You look different. I feel different. This is the first time in 15 years I haven't been high. I said, well, God's doing something. He gave his heart to Christ. He, he sends me text messages every day of literally way too much of his body. No track marks. No track marks on his legs, on his arms. I was like, I finally sent him a text. Hey, dude. Don't go any higher in the pictures or any lower. Because he was like, every day, it's like, look, look. He comes to church the next Sunday. He's like, Pastor, look, look at my arms. And he goes in my office. He's like, come in my office. I'm going to take off my shirt. I'm like, no, I don't want you to stop. But he's so excited. God has miraculously freed him from drugs. And he walks out of the service at the end of that Sunday service with a coffee and yells down the hallway, this was the best. And he uses the F word with an I-N-G. (laughs) service I've ever been in in my entire life and the whole hallway goes and, it, and listen I'm going to tell you a little secret every pastor knows the pocket of people who could have been in the hallway at that time could have been anybody else than who was there but it was my pocket that did not like sinners and certainly would not be comfortable. Now, by the way, I wasn't comfortable with that. And this guy freezes in the whole hallway. I'm talking like 100 people. And I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. It was, and then they all went like this at me. And the guy starts to self-loathe, which was the root of what he got into drugs. Oh, pastor, I failed. Can't believe I messed this up in my life too. I've come here for a couple weeks and I'm just so excited about and I said, hey, listen, stop. I said, there's gonna come a day when you know yelling that down the hall is not appropriate. And I think it's already come. Oh, for sure. (laughs) It's just for sure. And I said this statement, and it shot out of my mouth before I realized it. I think it was God. I said, and by the way, it's, I said, I want you to leave here celebrating what God did right in your life, not what you did wrong. And it's been a long time since any of these people came running out of service that excited about the work of God in their life. And then he goes, well, all right, great coffee! And he ran out the door, and then I turned, and everyone's crying. And I thought, oh, no, I think I just insulted everyone in this hallway. So I said, everybody, follow me to the cafe. We go in the cafe, and I said, "How you doing?" and and a prayer meeting sort of broke out of repentance. Pastor, I hated that guy, but I am a secret drinker. I'm an alcoholic, and you don't know it. I think what I hated was they brought me in direct contrast that I had to live better, and I didn't like having to live better. And I went, "Uh-oh," and then confession started. And I said, please, nobody send me any pictures. <laughs> I Can I tell you, I don't know if I handled that thing perfectly, but I will tell you this. That guy came to our church for a few years, ended up moving to California, got married, and is now the treasurer of a board of a church of 3,000 people. And he called me He called me one Christmas and said, Pastor, I want to face, FaceTime me. And it's Christmas. And I look, and he turns the camera to his family. And he says, look what God did. And one Sunday, this is my wife. I want to introduce you to her. She's in tears. Pastor, I don't know you. I said, I don't know you. She goes, he told me he said something horrible with a coffee cup in the hallway. I said, <laughs> I said you have no idea. And he goes, please don't say it out loud. I said, I could send you pictures. <laughs> and he goes, oh, no. And then he introduces me to his 2-year-old girl. He had a 5-year-old girl, a 2-year-old girl, and a newborn. And the 2-year-old girl looks at me, and Dad must have said something to this, but she looks at me, and she says, Thanks for giving me a life. Because you helped give me a daddy. Because he found Jesus, because he'd be dead if not. Now, should a two-year-old know that? Probably not. But how many know? What we do changes everything. I'm gonna give me five more minutes. Then God gives him the promise of a perfect city. Watch this. Jeremiah 29:10. With 70 years are are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you and promise you and bring you back to this place. God says, listen, I want you to know the result of this is I'm going to change everything in your future. I still got a plan for you in the midst of what you do for me. And then the promise of a bright future, watch this, Jeremiah 29, 11, and we quote this church. This is, listen, you can't quote this message if you're not a missionary because this wasn't written to the church. This was written to the missionaries of that day. We quote it, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for me, says the Lord, plans to prosper me, for not for evil, to give us hope and a future and a hope. I will tell you, this was written to Israel in exiles and God was telling them to get their heads on straight to reach their community. And we quote that as this is a verse that's just for all believers at all times for us to go, ooh, this was written to missionaries in exile, living in Babylon, who didn't want to be there, who had their bags packed for God to get them out of there. And yet, God says, love that city because I have great plans for you in the midst of an ungodly culture. I want to wrap up with this and and just want to give you two things and then I'm going to have the worship team come up in about three minutes. Jesus cried twice in scripture. um, Two times. And uh, I think it reveals his heart. And I just want to hit these real quick. First one is, Jesus Christ for people. Uh, we know the story. Lazarus is dead. And uh, John 11 says this, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said unto the Lord, Come and see. Jesus wept. We know that verse, the shortest verse in the Bible. And, uh, and it says this, So the Jews said, See how you loved him? But some of them said, could, he, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man and also kept him from dying? And over the years, this verse has made people wonder why Jesus cried. I think it's real simple. I really do. Jesus knew he had already told Martha that he had planned on resurrecting Lazarus. How many know he already told him that? He said, hey, listen, I'm going to raise him from the dead. Don't worry about it. I don't think Jesus was was crying because he knew. I think this. I think Jesus, the key to verse 35 is found in verse 33. It says this. When Jesus um, said this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I will tell you what made Jesus weep. What made Jesus weep is not the possibility of a miracle. It's that other people were hurt. Jesus already told her. In verse 23, he says, I will raise him. Your brother will rise again. You don't have to worry about it. He's going to raise again. He wasn't worried. Jesus knew the plan. What troubled him, what brought pain to him, was that Jesus saw people hurting. And he he saw something within them, and it stirred something within him. And the truth is this, Jesus wept for people, and so should we. He saw and he still sees the pain of humanity for the people who don't understand, people who are lost without his presence. Let's make this more personal. Jesus weeps for your prodigal son or daughter. Jesus weeps for your brother or sister who's away from Christ. Jesus weeps for that that coworker. And here's the thing, as believers, if we want the heart of Christ, our hearts should break for people too. He, had, he weeps for the addicted and confused, the lonely and lost, the abused and the neglected. And the second thing that made Jesus weep was places, people and places. Scripture gives us a look at the tears of Jesus as he's heading in towards Jerusalem. He knew this was a very important week. It was Passover, the symbolic day when, when God had promised on the Jewish calendar that God had promised them that he would heal and deliver them. And massive crowds have gathered. And watched this, Luke 19. When he drew near to uh, that place, and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it to me. Jesus is heading in, at the, he's at the Mount of Olives, and he's overlooking the valley, and he can see Jerusalem, he can see the temple, and he can see the crowds. And Bobby, you and your team can come on up. And I want you to feel this as he comes into the city. Verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice in praise, giving a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and on the highest. There is a celebration, and they're declaring him Jesus. And then we read this, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And I'll tell you why he wept. He sees the temple. He sees a celebration. And in the midst of the scene of celebration, he's not celebrating. And here's why. Verse 42. Would that you, even though had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And what he sees is a city that doesn't recognize him. They think he's coming to be the great deliverer from Rome. They think he's going to be the king in a different way. But they don't see him for who he is. And you can just play something if you can in the background here. I always, it sounds more dramatic and I preach better with background music. That's a joke. My wife tells people, tell people you're going to close. Even if it's a lie, it gives them hope. okay. Okay, I will. Listen, Jesus weeps over a city that has its eyes closed. Verse 43 and 44, for the days will come upon you where enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and, them, uh, and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus says, listen, the future of this city is troubled. He sees their future and says, you don't understand who I am. I'm coming in your city not to rid you of Rome. I'm coming in your city to be your savior. And you don't know who's here. The city doesn't know who Jesus is. And while celebration's going on with the Christians, like we do every Sunday in our cities, and we declare the goodness of God as we should, All around right now in Sterling Heights and Washington Township, we have hundreds of people standing in a service declaring the goodness of God. We're going to sing a song in just a moment and do the same thing. And as celebration's happening, Jesus is weeping for the city because he's going, there's a lot of people who don't know who I am. You know, they didn't fully, but you know, but they're weeping. He's weeping because he knows the future without him. And so I tell you, Gateway, you're moving into a new church at some point here, a new building. May you not have just built a building. May you build a recovery place, a true hospital, where sick people can walk in the door and the Holy Spirit cleans them up. May this city not have a clue what is coming their way. As they drive by that building, may the Holy Spirit draw people and may you be in the city reaching people and sharing the love of Jesus Christ and embedding yourself in positions of leadership to tell a world that doesn't know Jesus is here. May your heart break for people. May you love your zip code. May you love your neighborhood. May you love your office and may you love your school. And may you be part of a revolution that doesn't just say what's wrong in your community. May you say what's right. Jesus Christ lives within me and he is good yesterday, today, and forever. He's the son of God who really came, really lived, really died, really rose again, sits at the right hand of the father. Someday we'll come back for those who know him. And I believe he is my Savior. Let me tell you what he's done for me. And day by day, may this community awaken to the glory and the goodness of Jesus amongst them. To do this, your hearts must break, but you must be able to too. You guys have a faith promise card and, and I'm just going to tell you the way this message is ending. Listen, next week, Pastor Ben wants you for sure to bring that and this isn't about a money thing. How many understand this is part of what you do to fund missions. How many know the economy of the kingdom is souls, not money? But God uses finances. Listen, as you go through this, you know, if you can fill that out, God puts it hard, drop it off today, bring it back next week. That's fine. But just, just make sure you partner with it because it does take resources to do that. I will tell you, our church generously gives thousands and thousands of dollars every year so we can reach our city. We're moving into now Love Weekends. Instead of a Love Week, we're doing Love Weekends where we're going out and doing crazy things like showing up at football games and giving seat cushions that say Freedom Christian cares about families and cares about you. And we're having uh, uh, gifts that we're giving to people and people are blown away because they go, oh, you're Freedom Christian, we know you. This is the third to fourth largest city in the state of Michigan and a church of, of several hundred is making an impact. And I'll tell you why. Because our heart is broken for people and places. Because Jesus' is heart broke for people and places. We're not going to live as victims in this culture. We believe God put us there to be victors in this culture. 2 Corinthians 9.6, this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. May you reap and sow. May you reap what you sow, and may you sow great things. May the things that you give in your daily life through your words and encouragement, and may the way you walk in your life sow deep into your community. And may the Holy Spirit move upon this great congregation. Stir in your hearts. Lord, break us again. Would you pray with me? And then I'm going to have Pastor Bobby lead us. Lord, I just pray for this church that you would just stir our hearts. Lord, even now let us begin to weep in our hearts, or minds, or even in our, our bodies for our city. Lord, put people in our minds. Help us be strategic in how we reach. Help us look at those around us and say, God, give us that opportunity to do great things. God, be with us. Let the greatest days of reaching this community be ahead of this congregation, not in their past and not in their history. And may we not celebrate just buildings, but the opportunity that buildings and churches that come together with the mis- message of you can do. Lord, we know that we are not living here to just survive. We are here to thrive under your anointing. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this week's message from The Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegatewaygh.com.